0: You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Gonna grab last coffee or pastry and head on back. On your way, if you turn to Galatians chapter four, we're gonna be in verses one through seven. Galatians four one through seven. And if you're using one of those hardback black Bibles, uh, you're on page 974. So feel free to use one of those. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of those pew Bibles. You can get on the resource table over there. Again, page 974 in those. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. And We are beginning our Advent series today, which we have called Foolishness to the World. Because in many ways, the coming of Jesus also called the incarnation, does not make sense according to human wisdom. We like power and strength, but Jesus came in humility and in weakness. We like efficiency and speed, but it took thousands of years after the fall for Jesus to come. The coming of Jesus in his birth in obscurity, his life of humility, his sacrificial death, it is foolishness to the world. But it is the wisdom of God. And throughout the series, we're going to look at several different aspects of the incarnation that may seem foolish to the world, but are an expression of God's infinite wisdom. And today, we're going to talk about the timeliness of the incarnation. And when I read our passage here in a moment, we're going to see that it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. The coming of Jesus was intentional And it was exactly when God wanted it to happen. And here's what I know. If you're like me, people in this room, we struggle sometimes with God's timing at certain points in our lives. You wonder why God doesn't act sooner. Maybe you've struggled to be patient, waiting for God to repair what was broken. There are people in this room who are wondering right now today when God is going to take action in your life if he's going to take action, and you're struggling to trust in God's wisdom in your own particular situation. Our passage today is a reminder that God's timing is perfect. The coming of Jesus happened exactly how and when God wanted it to, and as a result, we can trust him with the events of our life as well. And so if you would stand with me, let's read from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Go to grab a seat and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. And here now as we open it, God, we are asking for your help. We need your wisdom, not ours. We would not have planned the incarnation, the coming of Jesus in the way that you did. And we thank you for your wisdom, even if it appears foolish to us at times. So would you humble us now that we would hear your word? And would you help us by your spirit that we would behold the wondrous things that are found here in your scriptures? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Winston Churchill, when he was only 33 years old, had reached the height of political power in Britain. He was a cabinet minister, he was a popular speaker throughout the nation, but several unpopular positions led to ridicule and rejection and a loss of political standing. And by the 1930s, his prophetic warnings about Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany were ignored by much of the public, who preferred the comforting promise of peace that was offered to them by political leaders like Neville Chamberlain. By the time Britain was plunged into World War II, Churchill was already 40 or 65 years old, 30 years after he'd kind of hit that peak. He could have retired on a government pension by then, but it was at this moment that the nation turned to him for leadership in some of their darkest days. In the first 30 years of his life, Churchill grew into a popular civil servant. In the next 30 years, he was forced into obscurity and relative insignificance. What patience he must have had to endure that, what confidence that the work he was doing mattered to still be around by the age of 65. And this experience is perhaps what's behind this quote that he had later to say, to each there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the chance to do a very special thing unique to them and offered the chance to do a or sorry unique to them and fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. Here's the reality of our lives. We will all struggle with the timing of certain events and circumstances. We'll struggle to grow or struggle to be patient. We will grow impatient. We will wonder why God is doing things the way that he is and the timing that he is. Why he has not provided an answer as soon as we want. And when we are young, we will struggle to be patient. As we get older, we will struggle to endure and remain focused on the most important things in life. But we will all wonder if God's timing is truly good. And so the message of the sermon this morning is this, God's timing is always perfect so we can trust him even when we don't understand. God's timing is always perfect, so we can trust him, even when we don't understand. Apart from God, the world will feel random, even though it isn't. And in sending his son, God has set us free from the forces that want to enslave us. One of the clearest expressions of God's perfect timing was the sending of Jesus. And let that be a reminder for you that you can trust him with the events of your life as well. And so for our outline this morning, we have three aspects of God sending Jesus. The first is God's perfect timing. The second is God's perfect freedom. The third is God's perfect son. So first, God's perfect timing. Paul begins our passage in verses 1 and 2 with an analogy, this little short analogy describing a child who is the heir to their father's estate. And Paul says that the child, when they are young, even though they're the owner of everything, they are functionally like a slave. He explains why that is the case in verse 2. Because the child is under authority and rule of others, of guardians and managers, until he reaches a certain age... He's not free to do whatever he wants, but he must obey their commands until the date that is set by his father. Before a minor came of age, they had no legal rights, and the father would set a predetermined age when the son would become free. Now, the exact legal history of verses 1 through 2 is a little bit difficult to trace, but Paul's point is very clear. A child who is under the rule of guardians is not free Even if they are the heir of all things, he is like a slave. And then in verses three through four, Paul applies the analogy to his readers. Verse three begins with this transition phrase in the same way. We also Paul is saying, let's apply that analogy to ourselves. He says, we, we, when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, like the sun under guardians and rulers, we were held captive and just as the father set a date for the son to become the master in verse two, so also God, the father sent forth his son when the fullness of time had come. And Paul is making two links then between the analogy and the spiritual reality for the Galatians to whom he's writing. One is the concept of slavery versus freedom, which we're going to talk about in the second point. The other is the foresight of the father to determine the time when freedom would come. With regard to timing of Jesus coming, Paul is making a significant theological statement in drawing this analogy. He's saying that God determined the appropriate time for sending Christ into the world. It was not arbitrary, it was not reactionary, it was intentional, and it was initiated by God. And like an infant, we are ignorant of our own need for God to send his son at an appropriate time. We didn't even know that we were under the rule of a guardian, in need of freedom. We could not ask for that. God is the primary actor in the unfolding of salvation. When we think about the story of Christmas, God is the primary actor. The story of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, it is not random. It happened when and how God the Father appointed. It happened when he decided the fullness of time had come. Historians and biblical scholars have tried to reconstruct history and trying to make sense of the timing to figure out why it was the perfect time for Jesus to come. And many appeal to what's called Pax Romana, which is translated as Roman peace. At the time Jesus came, Rome had a very large territory in the world, and they maintained a rule of law within that territory. So within the territory, there was rel- it was relatively a peaceful environment. There was an expansive road system which made travel possible. There was a common language so that the message of the gospel could spread. It was, in many ways, the perfect social and political time for Jesus to come into the world. And that sort of world would come crashing down with the fall of the Roman Empire and not emerge again in the world for over a thousand years. And so as we look back, we try to reconstruct these events and understand why it was that God chose that moment in history to send Jesus. And has anyone here ever done that with the events of their life? Trying to look back at what has happened, to make sense of a sequence of events, doing our best to understand why God might have acted, how he did, when he did. And it can be helpful to look back, to try and make sense. But we cannot base our trust in God's wisdom, in our ability to make sense, of it all. We must acknowledge our own humility, our own inability to fully understand. If we had infinite knowledge of time and intent and global events, we might begin to understand, but we don't even have that, let alone the wisdom to know how all those things fit together. Only God has that ability. And in his perfect knowledge and wisdom, he determined it was the right time to send Jesus into the world. And like an heir who must trust the times appointed by their father, we must grow to trust God's wisdom in the timeliness of all things, beginning with the incarnation and the coming of Jesus. There's no event in history that was more important or significant than the moment Jesus came into the world. And if God knew when to send his son into the world, he also knows how to respond to the needs of our lives today. One of the most significant difficulties of life is learning to trust God's timing. As I said at the beginning, there are people in this room right now struggling with the events and circumstances of their life that are beyond their control, and you want God to provide an answer. He just doesn't seem to be responding the way that you want him to right now. You might be like Churchill, past your early 30s, wondering if your life has already peaked, Or maybe you have relational conflict in your life and you're wondering if God is going to help you resolve it. You don't seem to see a pathway forward and you're crying out to God to bring healing where you don't feel like you can. And there are a myriad of other unresolved threads in your life. Idols that cling to you. Anxiety you can't shake. Finances that are upside down. You're going impatient. You're wondering if God is going to do something about it. And here's what I want you to hear today from God's word. Trust that God's timing is perfect, even when we don't understand. In the fullness of time, he sent his son. He will meet your need in just the right way at just the right time. I was talking with someone recently who has picked up the practice of a prayer journal, keeping their prayers in a journal, and they were... Looking back over this handful of prayers that they had started with, and they recently noticed that God had answered some of those prayers. And so they celebrated and thanked God for the way that He had done so. They also realized that some of the prayers are the sort of prayers that they'll never know if God answered them or how He may have answered them. And still, other prayers they realized they're the sort of prayers that will take years, maybe a lifetime to resolve. And as this person was sharing, there was a keen awareness. That even though some prayers can be seen and celebrated, much of life goes unresolved. Many threads will not be resolved on this side of eternity. Answers to prayers go unseen, which means that life will require us to learn to trust God, that his timing is perfect, and that his wisdom is infinite. The second aspect of sending Jesus, of God sending Jesus, is God's perfect freedom that he offers us in response to our slavery. In the analogy of the heir in verses 1 and 2, Paul says that the son is like a slave because he is under the authority of guardians and managers. And then he applies it to his readers because apart from Jesus, we are all under a type of slavery. And then he references two primary forces to which we are enslaved. One of them is to the law, which he talks about in verses 4 and 5, and the other are the elementary principles of the world from verse 3. And what I want to help you see is that these are two distinct forces, and yet they have a very similar foundation. Just before our passage began, back in chapter 3, Paul uses language of slavery and imprisonment when talking about the law. For example, in Galatians Galatians 3.23, he says, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In the very next verse, he calls the law a guardian, which is the same language he uses for the air in that analogy in verses 1 and 2. So when Paul says that we are enslaved to the law, he means that we were caught up into a system that would never make us right with God. We were enslaved to the cycle of trying to do good, but realizing we cannot truly be good. The law gave us a standard by which we could be measured, and when we compare ourselves to that standard, we will always fall short. We were enslaved to the reality that we are insufficient to fix ourselves. And we still experience that even today. We may not call it the law, we might call it legalism or moralism or religion. And here's what happens. When we come to see that we are not good enough, and often we don't need to be told that that's true, we know this implicitly, that we are flawed. We even have a phrase when we say, well, I'm only human. So we are enslaved to this reality that there is a moral standard and we fall short. We cannot escape our imprisonment. Our enslavement to the law makes church people some of the most insecure people in the world, And that's not how God wants it, but that is what happens to us sometimes. Because if we get enough of the Bible to know that God is holy and that we are sinful, but we do not get enough of the gospel message to know that God has resolved that issue in Jesus, then we will be deeply insecure. It produces people who feel like we need to perform for each other. When we gather on a Sunday or in home groups throughout the week, we will feel like we need to pretend We need to learn how to speak the religious language and do the religious things so that we can be accepted by others. And that's actually one of the primary errors. That's one of the primary reasons Paul's writing this letter to the Galatians. The Galatians had been set free from the law and Paul is asking them, why are you resorting again to the slavery that God has set you free from? And Paul's not saying that the law is bad here. Later in Galatians, he even says that the freedom you have in Christ is not an opportunity to ignore God's commands, but to serve one another in love, to actually fully live out what he's commanded. The key distinction is what we believe gives us right standing with God and one another. Is it our ability to keep the law or our faith in Jesus who has kept the law perfectly on our behalf already? And even if you have trusted in Jesus, it's easy to fall back into this type of slavery, submitting again to the religious rituals that will imprison you and never actually making you righteous at all. So one type of slavery is the law. The other is the elementary principles of the world, as we see in verse three. And the exact meaning of that phrase here can be hard to discern for the Greeks, it would have meant the four basic elements in the world, earth, wind, fire, and water. Now, it seems unlikely that Paul would limit it to just those four elements. Paul expands the meaning of that phrase to speak of all the rulers and powers and principalities that had dominion in the world. For example, in Ephesians, Paul speaks of this spiritual reality. In verse two, he says that we, when we were dead in our sin, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Later in Ephesians, Paul talks about Jesus overcoming the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And in Ephesians 6, Paul said that our battle is not against other humans, not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In Paul's understanding of the world, the veil was thin that separates the physical and the spiritual realities, And prior to Christ freeing us, we lived under the slavery of forces that wanted to undermine God's purpose in our lives. Now, that can at times feel maybe philosophical and distant, and as a result, rather impersonal. So let me give you just a simple way that it applies to us today, because those same forces are at work. And rather than think about them as mythical demons that you see pictured in Hollywood movies... Think about how they will use natural forces in our world to keep us enslaved. And since we're talking about the timeliness of the incarnation, that's a good way to apply it because in our efficiency-driven world, we would be ignorant to not see how time has become an idol for us, how it keeps us enslaved. John Foreman has this great little line in his song, Ghost Machine, where he calls the clock the altar of our time. It is at an altar where we come to worship, where we give our best to the one that we serve. And Foreman is saying, in just a few words, that our clocks, our calendars, they have become the things that we worship. And so I'll ask you have you mastered your clock, or has it mastered you? Are you imprisoned by your calendar, a slave to the turning of the dial? Now, of course, calendars represent a whole host of other priorities in life. I could not faithfully fulfill all my responsibilities without technology and tools to help manage it. Things like calendars, clocks, and to do lists, these are not all bad. But have we become so obsessed with controlling our time that it's actually started to control us? And there are many who are raising the alarm about our obsession with efficiency. In a recent Forbes article, Melody Wilding talked about productivity like an addiction, something that initially brings pleasure, but eventually becomes compulsive to the point of interfering with normal life. Are you imprisoned by your inbox, compulsively checking to see if you have a new message? Has your phone become like an extension of your hand and, and creates guilt in you each week when you get the screen time notification that pops up are you so acutely aware of wasting time that you become anxious if you're doing anything that doesn't feel productive enough our obsession with efficiency is one of the ways that we fall back into slavery to the elementary principles of the world and it's not that becoming more efficient is inherently bad god wants us to work hard But what is often behind our obsession with being efficient is our need for control and a lack of trust in God's perfect timing. The analogy that Paul is making here in verses 1 and 2 is about the difference between a free son and a slave son. It's an analogy he appeals to, again, later in chapter 4, when he's talking about Abraham and his two sons in the book of Genesis. One was born of a slave woman, the other of a free woman. And Abraham's story shows what happens when we do not trust God and his timing. We try to take control ourselves. In Genesis 12, God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to make him a father of many, that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and that through his offspring, God would bless the nations. And then God renews that promise in chapter 15 of Genesis. But in chapter 16, still... Abraham had no children. His wife, Sarah, was barren. God had made this promise, but Abraham was growing older and older, and he started to struggle to trust God's promise. And so he took matters into his own hands. And he had a child with Hagar, who was Sarah's servant. Hagar had a son named Ishmael, which created significant jealousy and conflict in Sarah, and eventually relational discord with Isaac, the son to whom God would eventually give Sarah, Isaac and Ishmael are the two sons that Paul's talking about in Galatians 4. And then the story of Abraham, we're reminded of what happens when we grow impatient and we stop trusting God and his promises, not willing to submit to the plans that he had and the means by which he intended to bring them about. So Abraham tried to seize control of the situation and the result was significant relational discord. When we fail to trust God, and try to seize control through our own plans, we fall back into slavery from which we've been set free. If we submit again to the slavery of the law, we reject God's promise that the sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient, and we try to take control by being good enough on our own. If we submit again to the slavery of the elementary principles of the world, like taking control by managing our lives through our own clocks and calendars, We reject God's goodness and do not trust that his ways are always good. And so we choose our own or whichever ways that the world is offering us that looks more appealing to us at the moment. If you are in Christ, you have been set free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And very practically, let me just ask you this question. Is there an area of your life where you are struggling to trust God's wisdom and God's timing. Are you being tempted to want to reject God's perfect plan and try to take control of the situation yourself? If so, hear me today, dear saints, do not submit again to that yoke of slavery. You can trust in God's perfect wisdom and his perfect timing Let the coming of Jesus that we celebrate here at Advent be a sure reminder that you can trust him. And so we come to the third aspect of God sending Jesus, God's perfect son. Here's the problem all humans have found themselves in. We were enslaved and we were in need of freedom. So in the fullness of time, God sent his son, And the series that we're going through is called Foolishness to the World because so many things about the way that God operates don't make sense to us. And when it comes to the timeliness of Jesus' coming, we might wonder why God took so long. Depending on how you mark the timing of the Old Testament, it was about 4,000 years between Adam and Eve's first sin and the coming of Jesus. By that time, people had been waiting Wondering if God was going to fulfill his promise to redeem what was lost. Some people wanted a political king who would win through the wars that he fought. Others wanted a teacher who would correct all the heresies that had emerged. And still others wanted him to confront the Pharisees for their facade of holiness. People were waiting and they wondered when God would finally fix what had gone wrong. And in the fullness of time, it says in verse 4, God sent his son, his perfect son. And Paul gives us two participle phrases there, born of a woman and born under the law. Born of a woman means that he was a human. It's not so much a statement about the virgin birth, although that is also implied. It is a statement about the fact that Jesus entered fully into the human condition. He was also born under the law. The slavery of all humanity to the law was experienced by Jesus as well. But unlike every other person in all of history, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. He became like us, human, under the law. And he was the perfect version of all that we could not be. And because he became like us, he made it possible for us to become like him. In verse 5, it says that God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came and submitted himself to the same law that keeps us enslaved. And he fulfilled the law by being perfectly obedient. We are all like child tyrants who defy their managers and guardians. But Jesus did not rebel against his father. He lived in perfect harmony and submitted himself fully to the law. By doing what we could not do, he was able to die the death that we deserve. He could redeem us who were under the law because he died as if he were the one who rebelled against the law. And not only did he perfectly fulfill the law, he also overcame the elemental spirits of the world through his victorious resurrection. He became like us so that we could become like him, adopted as sons and daughters. And so God sent the spirit of his son to fill our hearts, it says in verse six. And so as we close, let me briefly give you Two results of God's Spirit filling us. The first is intimacy with the Father. Because God's Spirit fills our heart, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an intimate, personal, and affectionate name for a father. It's like saying, Daddy. It's what our hearts cry when we're in need. I remember when my kids were younger and they would fall and skin their knee, even if it was a very surface injury, they would cry out for their parents. They'd cry out for me and Megan to come for help. What they wanted was their parents. That's a very natural cry for a child, even if they have bad parents, but we have a perfect father. And Jesus has brought us into intimate relationship with him. And so in the moments when you're struggling to trust in God's wisdom and timing, cry out to him as a kind and loving father. His spirit lives in you so that you can cry, Abba, Father. The second result of God's spirit is freedom. We are no longer slaves, it says in verse seven, but we are sons and daughters. Jesus overcame the elemental spirits of the world, so we do not need to submit to them as if we have no power or strength because God's spirit is alive in us. Jesus removed the chains. He opened the prison doors. If you have struggled under the weight of slavery to sin or have been imprisoned to moralism, trust in the freedom of Christ. It is available to you. It has been given to you. And his spirit is there as a reminder. There is no more significant event in the history of the world than the coming of Jesus. And if God could get that right, in the fullness of time he sent his son, we can trust him with all the events and the circumstances of our lives as well. God's timing is always perfect. So we can trust him, even when we don't understand Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.